This time, we're kicking off our month of 80 schlocky sci-fi with 1984's Dune. And along the way, we ask, why does David Lynch want nothing to do with this movie? Did this go unappreciated in its time? And what's with the homoeroticism? Fear is the podcast killer on this edition of Force Fed Sci-Fi. All right, folks, welcome back to another rendition episode, bombastic classic from yours truly, your two favorite podcast hosts. My name is Sean Michael Culp, and along with me is my friend and co-host. I am the mind killer, Chris Rupp. The mind killer. I love it. Very, that, very much. Um, I guess you could make an argument that this film is a mind killer in many ways. Uh, I think it depends on what edition of this movie you watch, to be honest. Because if you're watching the theatrical cut, yeah, you probably don't know what's going on. And then if you watch the three-hour TV edit of this movie, you also may not know what's going on. But there's something like, I think it's a dozen different edits of this movie that exist out there in the world, and nobody knows which one is the real one to watch. That can be a problem. I... (laughs) You know, this is going to be, this is one of those infamous films that will just, it's never, I guess it's not that it's never complete, but maybe it is. Like, we'll never see the full picture. Yeah, and we're certainly going to dive into why that is the case today with 1984's Dune. Um, But yeah, I just think we're, there's so many reasons as to why we're not going to get the full, the full film. A, David Lynch wanting nothing to do with it and not having creative control, and B, the producers just totally eviscerating what he wanted <laughs> to do. Yes. Well, yeah, hey, well, what is this film about? Um, you know, I can, uh, yeah, give us a synopsis on it. Okay, so Dune is set 8,000 years in the future. Um, obviously, there is no remnants of our current world in you know, hanging around there today. Uh, but the spice it's known as Melange is known as the most valuable item in the universe. It powers interstellar travel. It accelerates human evolution. Um, how, and it's only mined on this planet called Arrakis, the biggest desert planet there ever was apparently. And one of the ruling classes or families of this new universe, uh, house Atreides, they're ordered by, I guess the, the space emperor, to go to Arrakis and mine the spice because the spice must flow. However, this takes away the planet Arrakis from the people that were originally uh, harvesting the spice, uh, the Harkonnens. And once that happens, it's all like this weird plan by the emperor and the Harkonnens to destroy house Atreides because the emperor is afraid of house Atreides power and all these rivalries and enemies emerge to destroy House Atreides, Duke Leto, his his wife slash non-wife and his son. It's uh it's a complicated plot to say the least. Yeah, I would I would say complicated, yes. That's putting it very Yeah, very lightly. You're you're absolutely right. This is like one of those movies that it's just so difficult to adapt from a book, you know, because I don't know if you've ever you know how they say, like, sometimes adapting, like, a movie from the source material, it's always difficult. Like, the book is always going to be better than the film. I feel like this is one of those depictions. 
I think it depends on the source material, in all honesty. And I personally have not read Frank Herbert's Dune, but it's to me, it sounds like one of the most dense novels out there in terms of information because there's it sounds like there's backstory on literally every character conceived a backstory on all the tribes and the major houses and all the worlds and i mean i think you're absolutely right something like this is next would be next to impossible to adapt for the big screen especially if you're only given two hours to tell the entire story right and they tried i mean david lynch wrote it and directed it which is pretty fantastic because um a young david lynch nonetheless but he's a fantastic director he's been around he's known for his interesting artistic takes on film so initially you know there is kind of it's an interesting setup right because it's 84 it's early 80s so there it's fresh off of the star wars train you know when back then people were trying to pump out the next big space extravaganza yeah and he actually turned down an offer to direct Return of the Jedi because he wanted George Lucas to make that movie. And he instead, instead he was like, no, I'm going to do Dune instead. I don't know. He, he <laughs> Did he choose wrong? That's for us to decide. <laughs> I mean, we're going to do our best to try and parse that out today. But I mean, no, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like David Lynch, I mean, was and is still an incredible filmmaker. And before this, he had made a film called Eraserhead, which apparently was the darling of all the film festivals when it came out. And he also did an adaptation of The Elephant Man, which was nominated for a whole bevy of Academy Awards and really kind of catapulted David Lynch into um, like auteur filmmaker status in the early 80s. Yeah, Elephant Man. That's such a good film. I, I would say if you want a non- force-fed sci-fi movie recommendation check it out it's great it has that great scene where he's like uh, i am a human being <laughs> definitely check it out yeah, i'll co-sign that i'll go a little further and say uh you could probably check out the entire uh, uh catalog of david lynch films because i think he has truly made something for everybody out there if uh, television's more your thing well guess what he's got twin peaks so there you go <laughs> Oh, Rock on. We were just talking about that off air. One of the dudes uh, that's in this film, he revitalized his career with Twin Peaks. So I didn't know David. Uh, no, sh no crap. I didn't know that he made that. So that's funny. He probably felt bad after uh, killing that dude's career. <laughs> probably a little bit yeah and the dude we're talking about specifically is Kyle McLaughlin who plays Paul Atreides in this movie. Um, I mean there is a thick cast list in dune so i think i think it, it may be best to try and breeze through this as quickly as possible but this was kyle yeah. McLa i think th this was kyle mclaughlin's film debut and i don't think it it did him much credit because it didn't give him much of a chance to really show off his acting abilities it seems like the only direct things he knew how to do was to be faster and more intense <laughs> i would definitely so i definitely agree with you on that he really i feel like paul is just such a hard character to do you know because i saw the new dune and the way that kyle portrayed paul is very similar just this kind of like stoic to himself character it's not very he's not a very emotive guy where he's gonna be you know breaking grounds with his reign no probably not and then i mean it, i mean it doesn't help that his father is played by jürgen prock now um and who's 
I mean, I mean, Nurgen Prock now in this movie probably has one of the best movie beards I've ever seen. <laughs> yes, dude, the beard game in this film, even like not even the beards only, just like the costumes are just on point. The makeup is on point. Totally agree. I mean, and speaking of makeup, this is something that we briefly talked about on air, but Francesca Annis is uh, Lady Jessica, and we've got to say, <laughs> her eyeshadow game in this movie, definitely on point. <laughs> so Yeah, so on point. I, when she was on the screen, I'm like, man, this woman is beautiful. But hey, you know, kudos to her for uh, taking the role and doing her best, and I think shaving her head. I don't know if, like, those, uh, the females, because she played like a witch, and so she ended up having to, like, shave her head in the second half of the film for this weird pregnancy thing, whatever. But <laughs> kudos to her if she actually did that, because that's a choice, you know? I mean, could it could be, but production lasted, like, six months, and six months is a long-ass time to have a bald head if you're not used to having a bald head. Yeah, that's shaving it, like, every day. And their heads were shiny, too. I'm like, I wonder if they wax those things. I mean, it had to have been. There had to have been a lime item in the budget for head wax. There just had to have been. <laughs> you know who we also get in this film in a very, I guess, timid, not too um, emotive role either is uh, Sean Young from uh, Blade Runner. A young Sean Young as uh, Chani, Paul's lover. Yeah, like Sean Young in the early 80s definitely would have been like a big star had she had just gotten out of her own way i think because she did stripes in 1981 she did, does blade runner the following year and then she does this movie granted it was a box office bomb but still like it is decent but at the same time too her main job in this movie is to be the love interest of paul and they have next to no romantic chemistry Kyle MacLachlan and Sean Young. It is almost laughable to watch them, you know, Mac face with each other in this movie. It's so, I totally agree. I texted him. I texted you when that happened. I'm like, dude, I just, I can't even, I'm so dead because the scene, like, I think Kyle and her meet after Kyle like kills the angry man over like his pride, you know? And then, Sean looks at him and then like some time passes and the whole mind you like what Chris said with the faster, more intense, like these people aren't very emotive in this film. So the whole time Sean sees this guy like Paul, nothing. There's no like flirting. There's no, you know, eyeing him up like he's a snack. And then all of a sudden in a cutaway scene, they just have her grabbing him by the arm and they just start making out. Very uh, confusing. Yeah, I guess there's no um, uh, version of courtship in the, the so distant future, I guess. <laughs> At least, like, give us a scene where you tell us how much you hate sand. Uh, please tell us how sand gets everywhere, and then you two start kissing. <laughs> I, I, I can't believe I would say, like, that George Lucas <laughs> is, uh, you know, romancing the stone is a little bit more than... Uh, you know, David Lynch, but hey, it is what it is. He had to cut the hell out of this movie. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, we'll breeze through the rest of the cast list pretty quickly here. We've also got uh, force-fed sci-fi alum Richard Jordan from Logan's Run making an appearance as Duncan Idaho. We've also got uh, the great Sir Patrick Stewart as 
Gurney Halleck, uh, definitely making full use of his Royal Shakespeare uh, Theater <laughs> Company training here. Uh, we've got the legendary late great Max von Sydow as Dr. Kynes uh, in one of his more uh, underrated performances, I would say. I will second that, my good sir. And then Sting. We have Sting as, uh, I don't even know how to say it, but the Baron's younger nephew. Um, his name is Fade in the movie. Like, it, it, I know it's spelled F-E-Y-D, but it's pronounced at, like F-A-D-E. Yes, Fade. And Sting is basically utilized to give really creepy smiles, Joker-esque smiles and stares. And to me, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know if you'll agree, I feel he was so underutilized as a character. I was so bummed with like how they just, he was just always in the side. And it wasn't until the end with that just really rushed battle. I was, I was really, uh, I was sad about that. I don't know. How would you think? It almost seemed like they were trying to film around Sting's like touring schedule or something because, like you know, you're absolutely right. Sting uh, Fade is definitely more scary and more intimidating than the Baron is, and definitely should have been more utilized as maybe like the villain who's trying to hunt Paul down in the third act as he's, or I guess now he's taking the moniker of Muad'Dib and trying to destroy Spice Production. But yeah, like Fade and Sting definitely underutilized. I mean. In the villain department, not so much in the in the homoeroticism part. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. I mean, speaking of homoeroticism, uh, the Baron. Holy crap. Who, uh, where, where is that guy? Oh, uh, Paul Smith. No, not Paul Smith. Who played the Baron? Kenneth uh, McMillan. That dude was crazy. Oh, God. Like. <laughs> It's just he's so gross to look at, and I get, and I guess that's something that's lifted from from the books, right? Because like, I mean, by our own admission, like neither of us have read the book, so we had to breeze through like a Cliff Notes version or any Wikipedia <laughs> links that existed. But I guess yeah, like they, the Baron, I guess in the book is so grotesquely fat that he needs like that suspension suit just to like get around. That's why he floats all over the place. Yeah, they they allude to him as the flying the floating fat man. <laughs> and he you're absolutely right. I think they're like draining the pus out of his boils in uh the opening scene where they uh, show us who he is and it's he's he's sick to look at and he is a disgusting man. Yeah, I guess that's something too that's um lifted from the books but never fully explained cuz I guess in the books like he rapes a Bene Gesserit mother. And because of this, he's cursed with this disease that causes uh, pustules to grow all over his body. Oh, wow. Huh. That Well, I guess that adds some uh, dimension to the character. <laughs> but you'd only know that if you read the book, because it's never explained why he's having these gross things lanced and, you know, drained during the course of the movie. God, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, it's like, how do you how do you bring that up in the film? Have a scene where he like rapes the woman at the beginning, and then ah, my face. Or I guess they could have like alluded to it. You could have had a throwaway line like, "Screw that woman! Look what she did to me!" <laughs> or something. It's, al it's also easier to just not have that be a part of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I well, no, yeah, David Lynch. You know, he want I could see, you know, because it just made his character look so. You know, because he's such a horrible human being with the raping of that 
boy at the beginning and like just nonchalantly ripping out people's like heart things. I don't know. What were those things called? It was like little devices that was like a track to the heart. Um, they're called heart tabs. I think they're mentioned at the near the end of the film when um, when Thufir has his uh, heart tab ripped out. And and when and so he rips those out. The Baron does that to the boy and some people and you just see blood come out and it's like an instant KO. <laughs> it's definitely a, a sinister way of keeping your subjects in line. Right. I'm going to I'm going to give you a heart attack unless you <laughs> follow through. Uh, horrible man. Horrible, horrible man. All right. Well, uh, we'll breeze through the rest of this cast list here. We've got also TV's Linda Hunt is the Shadat Mapes. Um, Freddie Jones is Thufir um, Watt that we mentioned. Brad Dourif from uh, Alien Resurrection makes another appearance on the Force Fed Sci-Fi Podcast. Is uh, Piter, I guess, uh, Piter DeVries, I, I guess they call him. Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> He's basically playing like a a very early version of uh, Grima Wormtongue from Lord of the Rings movies. It, it, indeed, but he is a hell of a character actor. I will give him his props. Uh, we've also got Everett McGill as Stilgar, Shawnee's father. Uh, Dean Stockwell is Dr. Yue, who uh, ends up betraying House Atreides. Uh, Sean Phillips as the Reverend Mother. I never can uh, pronounce Irish names. I think they're so... They're spelled funny and they're pronounced even weirder. So apologies <laughs> to Ireland, but you got some weird ass names over there. <laughs> and then uh, probably the the one casting, at least her character drew the most uh, last from you, I guess, is uh, uh, Aaliyah, played by Alicia Witt, Paul's little sister. God, that child. I If you if you want something to laugh at, uh, Google or go on YouTube and watch Aaliyah in the 1984's Dune. It's it's pretty, it's hilarious scene. This little child wrapped in Middle Eastern garb with blue eyes going, <laughs> it's fantastic. Also Highly creepily, also creepily looking at the other characters going, wait till my brother gets here. Yeah, <laughs> she was Chucky before Chucky was a thing. She was that little girl from uh, Poltergeist going, they're here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come play with us forever and ever and ever. There's something about little children, you know, that are just like, if with the right tone and look, they can just be a thing for nightmare fuel. <laughs> Come and play with us, Danny. No, thank you. I am good. <laughs> nope, I'm good. I'm going to ride around my big wheel in this creepy-ass hotel. I'm all good. <laughs> so that's a big cast. Very big cast. Big cast. Too many speaking parts, in my opinion. I think there's something like uh, 50 to 60 different speaking roles in this movie. And it's insane to me just how many people are cast in this movie. It's like It's so hard to keep track of everybody. So, yeah, I would say... If uh, it's getting a little criticism is uh, if they only honed in and I felt that was like the biggest problem and the difference between this Dune and the new one is the new one's a lot more focused just on Paul and his mom whereas this one there's just it's such an influx of characters you're like wait I have to keep track of this person too it's too much it's way too much uh, because then it takes in my opinion it takes away from the story because at one point I was like what the hell is the point of this film 
and I think you're right too. And I think that's something that's addressed in uh, later on after this movie comes out because there was actually a Sci-Fi Channel miniseries that was made for for this. I think in around the year 2000, it was three parts, so it allowed more time to develop these characters and for us to get to know them. But it's it's really hard to condense 50 different speaking roles into a two-hour film. Because then you run into the same problem that like some of these bloated superhero films get where you introduce a character too late and it loses its effectiveness or you have too many characters and inevitably somebody is going to get cut out. So it's I, I just feel, this is just this is too many people to keep track of and not enough time for us to get to know them or at least have them feel like a part of the story. Absolutely, because then you'll need to get a Zack Snyder treatment with the new with the Justice League that we reviewed. And, you know, I could say that the reason, at least in my opinion, why, like we've said too many parts, it all goes down to, in my opinion, the production and studio meddling, because this film has been uh, attempted. They tried to get this film off the ground for so long. I think the early seventies, correct? Yeah. So the original novel came out in 1965 was a big worldwide success. And in 1971, uh, producer Arthur P. Jacobs um, acquired the rights to it and almost made a movie that would have had David Lean directed. And if you're unfamiliar with David Lean, like, uh, I don't know where you've been. You've obviously been living under a cinematic rock, but he made uh, Bridge on the River Kwai, also Lawrence of Arabia. And I like it definitely would have (laughs) he would have taken his eye for epic films to this movie very hard. Oh, yeah, he is the man of epic films, right? Like, for, yeah, Great Expectations, Oliver Twist. I mean, you, yeah, Lawrence Arabia. I mean, he is the man. He would have taken that. Yeah, and then, but then that movie doesn't get made. And then the rights go to a, um, Wikipedia describes it as a, a French consorti- as a consortium that was uh, led by director Alejandro Jodorowsky. He was supposed to direct this. And not going to lie, his version of the movie sounds amazing. <laughs> like Pink Floyd would have done the music for it. H.R. Gear would have assisted on character design. Orson Welles, he envisioned Orson Welles playing Baron Harkonnen in that in his version of Dune. Ah, oh, <laughs> that would have been amazing. Orson Welles is one of my favorite actors. Um, however, it was scrapped because uh, Jodorowsky's version of the movie would have ended up being like 10 to 14 hours long and nobody was going to fund that. No, that's like, yeah, that's a four to five part film. That's a long, that's a long film. But it's also like, you know, when there's so much source material, where do you begin? Because uh, after that gentleman, who else? I think another person tried to direct this D Laurinaitis. Yeah. Um, Italian producer Dino De Lor- uh, Laurentiis, I think is his name. Um, he got the rights in 1976 and he actually went back to Frank Herbert and asked him to write a screenplay, which ended up being about three hours, um, three hours or about 180 pages in length. Cause you think about a minute per page, equal, uh, one page equals about a minute of screen time. And, in 1976, if you know your film history, that's about three years before a little movie called Alien comes out. 
and totally changes the landscape of sci-fi and horror films. And Laurentis was able to nail down Ridley Scott to direct Ooh. Dune. And he got wow. Ridley Scott for about seven months. Oh, my God. And H.R. <laughs> <H>. Giger. <laughs> so he, this could have been before Alien. Um, it would have been after. Um, but like the, but uh, unfortunately, Ridley Scott's older brother unexpectedly passed away. And he didn't want to commit to like a three-year production cycle that would have been with this movie because he wanted to spend time with his family. And, like, that was it. It seemed like it was all dead in the water from that point. And then the man we've been talking about so much, David Lynch, comes in fresh off the heels of rejecting an offer to direct Return of the Jedi. Gets a chance to write and direct an adaptation of one of the most beloved sci-fi novels of all time. So it's there. You know, they're finally, they're like, all right, maybe this is going to be the guy. They thought so, but the, the screenwriting process alone took a year and a half to accomplish and that is a long ass time to write a screenplay usually in 18 months you have a film done in that time oh there's and just so much source material it's it's like where do you begin right you gotta make a trilogy and that's what they originally had in mind lynch wanted to make two films uh to split up the the first book because i guess this is a whole series of books i think there's something like four or five books and lynch wanted to do basically i think it was two films per uh, per book and that was his original plan and the producers told him no you have to trim this down to one movie which he did and decided to give him a production budget of 40 million dollars which back then is decent money that's a lot of money back then i mean in today's currency that's over a hundred million dollars and it's also the reason why they primarily shot in Mexico, because the exchange rate was more favorable there. <laughs> right. All the scenes, desert scenes. Well, yeah, because they the set, I believe the production required like 80 sets and 16 sound stages, 1700 people and 20,000 extras. Because you can see uh, in, during the battle sequences, those are all people. They somehow Shanghai thousands of people to wear those black uniforms and run across the sand wearing big head-to-toe black costumes in a mexican desert <laughs> I, I hope to god there was water for all those people yeah well yeah right because they were from what i read it was a really tough production like they had a lot of issues with electricity communication health infrastructure issues weather related i mean it was a Doom production from the beginning. Yeah, if there's something we've learned over the course of this project is, you know, if you have a very fraught production schedule, either you can't find a director or something happens during shooting, it, it's not going to bode well at the end of the day for your film. Yeah. Oh, I, I will absolutely second that. Yeah, it's it's probably not going to start off. It's not going to finish well if it's got that rough start. And now I think finally we can like 28 minutes into our show, we can finally start getting into some aspects of Dune that were, I guess, uh, I guess things that we noticed right away. And one of the big things, and this is something that we've been alluding to, is 
um the very i don't want to say blatant but it is there this film it it it's some at several moments is very homoerotic i would say yeah oh yeah you see it um i think primarily with like the baron like him and his scenes like you see a lot of allusions to homoeroticism from the way he eyes other men I think at one scene like sting appears from like behind like a corridor and he's wearing like nothing but the um what would look like underwear like uh, a men's wrestling trunks <laughs> just like over his junk like a banana hammock and he's covered in water so he's glistening and basically almost naked and baron's eyeing him up like he wants to eat a steak yeah i actually read that sting wanted to do that scene nude and the studio said, no, you cannot do that. So they had to throw together that quick G-string costume for him to wear. <laughs> yeah, I can see Sting down for it. He's he's a very sensual guy based on his music. I mean, and, and it's definitely implied. Uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's implied that the Baron is gay. But I think at this time in the mid-80s, I don't know if, you know, having, you know, um, you know, somebody who's alluded to being gay as your villain be the smartest idea, given how this is the highs of the AIDS epidemic and uh, gay men were dying left and right. It seemed in this uh, in across America. Yeah, right. Especially with like then the way the Baron looked too, covered in like boils and all that. It kind of almost could be fuel for um, stereotypes, you know, and and more like oppression and just uh continuing the to reinforce the issues you know oh gay guys are covered in diseases and you know stds and stis and so i could definitely see that where that would come from and it kind of puts a sour taste in your mouth you know yeah especially too that coupled with the fact that the baron assaults a young man who is unable to give consent and you know after he's done with him he pulls his heart tab and kills him <laughs> which is messed up i felt so nauseous after that scene that's just how horrible right i think it just it really sets the precedent for how like terrible of a person that man is it's the dynamics of power that are at play throughout the course of this movie we see duke leto kind of wield his power with a very even hand like we don't see him power hungry in any way or exerting his will over any of his subjects or people that he's caring for and then we see the baron who has paid a, paid a pretty hefty cost for for his power and control of arrakis oh yeah physically he just is yeah uh he's definitely it's taken a toll and i think maybe like the difference between this film and the new one is like the newer one does a better job at like the point is almost you could say like white people coming in like the white savior element. Whereas um, with like Arrakis, since it was just a bunch of white people, <laughs> it was a little bit the uh, the visual for like, you know, these high and mighty people coming in and swooping over, taking control and like corporatism and. Uh, industrialism and all that stuff going against like the third world countries you don't see it as um it's not as clear in this one 
Yeah, there's a definite theme of colonization, I think, that uh, is present in both versions of the film, uh, the 1984 and the 2021 version. Um, and that's something, too, that like we can't really gloss over, I guess, because in, in many ways, this movie is an allegory for you know, oil-rich countries that now have to deal with Western interests coming in and saying, well, we want this oil. And then people looking around going like, well, but it's in our land. Like, don't we deserve to profit from it too? And Western countries going, oh, no, no, no. It's just ours now. <laughs> it is our God-given right <laughs> to come in and take from your country, you peasants. Yeah, yeah, you can definitely see that in both films, that imagery. That's funny that you say that. But it's very true, very true. Yeah, and especially, too, like in the latter half of the film, we see Paul leading the Fremen in an uprising that's similar to like what happened in Iran, in, in Libya, in many other Middle Eastern countries that decided, no, we don't want foreign interest here on our land, so <laughs> soaking up resources that we rightfully deserve or at least deserve a piece of so no we don't want you here anymore absolutely back back you you demons and the he ends up leading the charge which leads to the uh yeah i guess the destruction of that hilarious looking like palace golden palace thing pyramid yeah i i I think there's so many like filmmaking aspects to praise in this film i think you know as we were mentioning costume design the the makeup and some of the visual and production design are great but some of the special effects and miniatures are just so dated and noticeable especially by today's standards yeah yeah it's it's kind of interesting like while i was watching this thinking back to wow the the return of the jedi just came out the year before this film and it, the return of the jedi is just like light years ahead for its uh battle sequences space sequences spacecraft how they utilize um just special effects it's it's night and day it really is i i don't know how you felt about that oh you're absolutely right and how many times has this come up on the show where we watch a film set in a particular year and then we watch another film that's set in the same year, and it's a night and day difference in terms of visual effects. Right. The, the yeah, especially in this with those battle sequences with the with the guns. The, I don't even know what they're saying, but when they shot these blaster things, they're like ah ah or something or like pew. It's almost like they mouth the the word like the sound effects, and then people would just like jump out of the way and the ground would explode it was it was pretty awful yeah there's no laser blasts accompanying from those the sonic weapons <laughs> and apparently they're just shooting invisible fire at the at the baron's uh, soldiers and it's just killing everybody it's basically a war of words y- yes yes once again in some aspects, what looks great on paper, like in a book, might not translate to the uh, silver screen. But I think it, it also lends to some uh, suspension of disbelief because this movie is set 8,000 years in the future and it allows for a lot of freedom in terms of portraying technology. We see instantaneous interstellar travel, there's combat shields for people to use. And then there's also these um, sonic weapons that apparently work with 
in tandem with thoughts and words. Yeah. Which is pretty wild for the future, at least. Um, the spacecraft were pretty cool, too. I mean, like the suits, the hydro suits. That was all. It was all really. It's unique, right? Like the technology, the advancement is pretty unique, pretty interesting. It is. I just would have liked to have seen more of the ship designs because I think that's that's one of the big departures from the book to the film is that the, the ship designs are wildly different compared to what Frank Herbert had originally envisioned. But again, limits of the mid 80s and technology. So you weren't going to make anything too fancy. But I like the idea of exploring the possibility of instantaneous interstellar travel and Spoilers, is it technically possible? Yes, but it's very difficult to achieve. Like, You need a vast amount of energy. You, to build a ship capable of traveling interstellarly, at least, you would have to build thousands upon thousands of nuclear reactors and just to get enough energy to do it. And the other problem is that building these thousands and thousands of nuclear reactors is very costly. There's nobody that's going to want to spend that much money just to go from one end of the universe to the other when we don't even know if it's explorable or not. Well, I mean, on the plus side, though, according to this author, the key to our intergalactic interstellar travel is actually in our spice cabinet. So there you go. <laughs> I would love to know what it exactly is in that spice that makes it so vital to interstellar <laughs> travel. <laughs> yeah, I agree. What is it? Is it the cayenne pepper? I don't know. I don't know. And was the planet Arachnus all spice? Were they like walking on spice? Um, I think so. And it's and it's there's so many different uses to it too. Like there's it's used as a psychedelic drug and it it, it unlocks like, uh, uh, I guess, uh, mental powers in humans. It, it changes the physiology of people, too. And it's it's also very addictive, too. Like, like we see those big, like, brain-looking things at the beginning of the movie, and I guess it's because that they were, um, they were too exposed. They, they had too much spice. <laughs> and it just... I don't know. Like it's, But it's now become just one of those like fiction like drugs that are so present you know in the universe that you can't avoid it and it's now just become i guess ubiquitous because it's like it's referenced to in star wars um and the spice the spice must flow the spice is everything in this universe apparently it's all about the spice you know what else is i was also uh with this film pretty shocked about how like religion well actually no I guess it doesn't shock me now that I think about it a little bit more. That religion has still survived thousands and thousands and thousands of years, right? Because religions basically survived in our lifetime thousands of years. Yeah, I mean, it's true that, I mean, but the only two religions that have really survived are the Bene Gesserit, which I don't know if it's a religion so much as like a witch coven or and there's the Spacing Guild. Which, I don't know, can you make a... Is there a church of mathematics? I don't know. Like, I don't think that they, <laughs> No. They didn't strike me as the church-going crowd. I just think that they were super into math and interstellar travel. 
it beca- that became their religion. So like science will become our our religion in the future. Maybe maybe we'll worship like Stephen Hawking's or something. Uh, if only we worship facts instead of you know our own research. But you know. <laughs> In the age of YouTube and TikTok, if you give a compelling argument, I will bypass any research paper, I guess. Now that's the the way to go, huh? Yeah. And it's just it's monumental to think of like how uh you know the the three main religions that we're used to on earth, you know, how they managed to propagate and last throughout the centuries. And then we have global religions or at least universal religions here 8,000 years in the future. Cause it's, it seems like that there's no other schools of thought in terms of like these, these consciousness and these belief systems. Yeah. It, it, well, it seems like their religions are very practical, like math spice because spice powers the universe. It's more like centered on like the physicality, what's, what's obtainable in front of them. Um, like how like the voice even um doing things taking control as opposed to like the idea of like an afterlife and um wanting to like bypass and like get to this end goal of like a heaven you know it's a very different approach to religion uh more grounded in the present i would say so would this be more considered like a refined consciousness or excuse me an evolved consciousness or more of a uh, refined system of philosophy? I would say that's a really, well, wow, that is actually a really good question. Um, I would say, yeah, that would be, I think it's like a little mix of both because they have some philosophical elements in there, but it is more like a consciousness because like the witch, um, the more spice you get, it seemed like they're more in like present and they're tapped into, I guess, whatever they're, their fiber of their reality, their superpowers, <laughs> they're unlocking the potential of their bodies and um, embracing it all as opposed to like hoping for like a better ending <laughs> or, or I don't know, I guess going to heaven. So I would say, yeah, it is, it might be a little bit of a both. Yeah. It's difficult to say without any sort of like other belief systems here in this world. I mean, we have, we have the Bene Gesserit who seem to be like out for themselves. And you also have the spacing guild that just wants the spice to flow no matter the cost. And I don't know, like you, we definitely see like how religion and belief systems get twisted because then we have the, the Bene Gesserit uh, mother turning on Jessica at one point of the movie and, you know, wanting to murder her, her only daughter, uh, murder Aaliyah and, really kind of chastising Jessica like you should have given him a daughter that way the the you know we could have ended the strife and all that stuff so I don't know to me like if it were an actual religion it wouldn't be trying to have its fingers in so many pots and trying to control events I feel like it just would have like taken a back seat and let things play out but I don't know it's 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 almost more cultish as opposed to passive religion I guess like all these people yeah i guess you could say it's like uh yeah like a bunch of kids that went to comic-con and discovered the power of this drug (laughs) and they all decided to go to their little decisions and beliefs 
and uh, now we're just like pining for whatever these groups are fighting for. I mean, very similar to like what we do nowadays, I guess, you know, just less fancy uniforms and blue eyes. <laughs> you know, there, uh, there is still the division of, you know, beliefs, you know, whether it be religion or ideological, um, political people still, I think, go in their little uh, microcosms of echo chambers. Uh, man, everybody just seems to be living in their own echo chamber these days. <laughs> maybe, maybe we all are in a way. I guess that's what uh, that's what meta is for on Facebook. Yeah, until that becomes you know a place where people just assault other other people's avatars. <laughs> that's right, <laughs> right on Snoop Dogg's lawn because he bought so much real estate up there. That's funny. That's funny. Oh my God. How, so I would say like the biggest problem talking about like assaulting a film, I would say this film, it's like divided up into like different acts. Like it's very, the first like for like for me, the first third of it was very narrative driven. It was more like expositional describing what's happening, what's going on. So you can get the setup. But it's like after that first third of the film, it just kind of goes wonky. Once like Paul crashes and then fights that dude and he meets the sand people, excuse me, spice people in the desert. To me, the film just like goes a little bit crazy. And I think especially at the end, you see how awful the editing, the editing is like that where they had to make up for all the extra footage and try to salvage it. I don't know how you felt because it was just all over the place and this is something that we were talking about before we started recording and uh both of us watched the same cut of this film that exists on youtube it's three hours long it's a fan edit there's clearly some 4k restoration that was attempted here but like no like and you're absolutely right the first act of this film the first hour or so is all exposition Going into the backstory, the motives to why the Atreides are going to Arrakis, what's the deal with the Harkonnens and the Emperor, and everything like that. The second act, the second hour or so, is where things like start to make sense. The story moves forward. Like I actually enjoyed the second act probably the most of this film, and then the third act is clearly where the studio told David Lynch to make every single cut imaginable because it makes next to no sense. Or hopping forward in the timeline way too far. We're given the Deus Ex Machina of the Water of Life and how that apparently trips people out and acts as poison. And it's it's insane just how much of that third act really jumps around and doesn't give us a chance to relax and digest the events of what we're witnessing. No, you're you're absolutely correct. It's 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 funny. You know, it's almost like laughably bad. Because there's like a scene where they're like, all right, war. They talk about going to war. And usually like in a movie when they're about to have a big battle, epic full scale that goes over the cross of a couple of years. There's like soldiers training, getting ready, going up to battle lines. But they're like, war. And then all of a sudden it's like a quick cut to them like on the freaking sand, like the desert, like shooting down ships and explosions. And it was like, what? This doesn't, uh, this is, you, you missed a little bit. Yeah, we also get the same shot of the same, um, care, like, um, a spice miner blowing up from seven different angles. 
They ran out of money. Yeah, and also, like, David Lynch did not have creative control over, you know, this final, uh, over the cut of the film. Like, he was he was definitely hampered by what the producers wanted and what the studio wanted. And supposedly, like, if, there, if we were to ever see a complete cut of Dune, it would purport to be about four and a half hours long. And this film was already pretty freaking long. It, it clocked in a little bit under three. So I could only imagine how the four would be. I mean, but the problem is, is that since David Lynch has disowned this movie, we have no idea to know what a definitive cut of the film is. And this is similar to what's happened with Blade Runner and all the different edits that the studio made until Ridley Scott came out with his director's cut and said, no, this one is it. This is the one I originally intended to go out to theaters enjoy but since david lynch is going to be david lynch about this whole deal he's not going to give us a final cut which i feel if we were to get that i feel like people's minds would just be blown away (laughs) maybe or maybe it's just been like so long because he i don't even know if they still have all the footage right yeah he's because i know he's he's done with this he doesn't want to he doesn't care about doing anymore so i don't think the chances of getting a Zack snyder cut you know, release-esque thing is it going to happen. I mean, it would be nice. It would be great to see to see the, the finally the, the David Lynch definitive cut of Dune return. But yeah, like it's it's hard to imagine. It w- it's hard to imagine that we'll see it now. It's it's unfortunate, though. It is unfortunate because I feel like this this movie, even though it didn't do too well and it's like critically panned. It's uh, it's got a lot of progress. I think it, it really tells an inventive, interesting story, um, and like just the set pieces alone and makeup and practical effects. Really, I think bar none, like they're they're uh, they're pretty impressive. And I think maybe you could give the respects to Star Wars because it really like set forth, you know, the motion of space films being really cool and interesting, especially at this time. So I th- I just, you know, I feel like if it wasn't as much studio meddling, this film probably might have been more of a space epic that we hail as one of the greatest as opposed to a cult classic. I mean, they were definitely trying to market this movie as sort of an adult Star Wars. Um, but I, I think the original Dune, at least the source material, um it inspired greatly a lot of what we saw in Star Wars, particularly uh, like a galactic empire. And then also this messianic figure uh, you have with Paul Atreides and Luke Skywalker, because the similarities between those two characters are immense and immeasurable to say the least. Yeah. In a way they're, they're there to save the galaxy, you know, from this evil force. And I guess the spices, could be utilized as the force but i think luke (laughs) luke was just so much a better character well because he was over three films as well so we got to see him rise and fall whereas with uh paul there really was no like he never like failed and i think maybe that's why from a storytelling element in this movie he he's just kind of a boring character because he's like a what do they call him a gary stew he's too perfect like he has no flaws you know even a woman that shows barely any interest in him, he's able to get her. Like it just, um, and without any, 
conflict or character flaws, there's really no growth, and it's really hard to relate to them. And I think that would be the biggest criticism with mine with this film. The characters really aren't relatable in any regards. No, and it also doesn't help either that Paul is born into a position of unimaginable privilege and wealth. He's the son of a prominent duke. He's had training from people like Gurney and Duncan, instruction from, at least mind instruction from his mother, and also the the guiding influence of his father. And it's anybody would be lucky to have just one of those people, that type of person, in their lives to mentor them and guide them. And Paul has four of them. Yeah. So he, he is set up for success for sure. Um, and I think, I mean, it's just like, I don't know. What did you think? Like Paul, how did he do like as a leader? Do you think he got cocky or he was just, because especially like, I don't know, just at the end, it's like he became initially when he, he, he met the people and that one dude was like, you have to fight me. And Paul's like, no, I don't want to fight. At the end, he like he turned the inverse where he just like starts ordering around the royal family. And he's like, I will kill you, Sting's character. And, you know, it was just a big uh, switch. He kind of lost his humanity. It's uh, it's the whole Gary Stew thing. You know, the, him drinking the, the water of life made him all powerful and he could do no wrong. So, of course, he's going to ride to Arakeen right on top of a sandworm <laughs> and totally mess stuff up and, of course, have the, uh, you know, a very anticlimactic final night fight with Fade and basically tell poor Princess Arulin that, hey, you're going to marry me, but I'm still going to sleep with my boo over here. And <laughs> and and to be honest, like and since this is the only film we get, we kind of have to infer as to how paul's time with the fremen is gonna go and like this is a ton of power that this young man now finds himself in he's basically the de facto ruler of arrakis the de facto emperor of of the galaxy now he's now in charge or oversees the production of the most valuable thing in the universe that type of power is going to go to anybody's head i don't care what sort of you know religious superpower he has this is this is absolute power an absolute power corrupts absolutely. I I totally agree with you, man. I don't think anyone has ever been able to rule and be successful without having some power go to their head. And um, I don't see Paul staying, you know, I don't see him being this messiah-like creature for too long. I think it'll just go to his head. And then, or he'll get murdered. You never know. I mean, but it's... Uh, it's just so frustrating like to see Paul kind of go through no real challenges, if you think about it. I mean, yes, there is the issue of him being kidnapped and his mother, him and his mother nearly being dropped in the desert, but they're able to escape that. He's able to, um, you know, survive his duel with the Fremen, train the Fremen to overthrow the Harkonnens and the Emperor. It just it, and it all seems like it's second nature to him. Nothing really feels like a challenge to Paul at any point in this movie. And yeah, and even the imagery of him riding the worm, like taming this giant beast of a creature that has just caused so much wreckage and murdered so many people on this planet. Paul like stabs it a little bit <laughs> or opens one of its flaps or something, and then he just climbs right up, puts a rope around it, and 
Yep. He, he just tamed the bull, like, just like that. And it's really, to me, that's kind of when I started, like, when I checked out of the film and just started laughing at the schlockiness because I'm like, all right, this man is, he's too perfect. Like, how, how can you just tame this giant beast? But I guess, you know, it's supposed to be the representation of his power and all that. And, and I understand that, but it's just um, from a believable sense. I guess that's where, like, for me, with some sci-fi films, they just go a little bit too much, and it's just so unbelievable. Where you're just like, eh, I don't, I don't buy it. But you know, it is what it is. Potato, potato. Some people love that stuff. Yeah, and you know, for the most part, you know, I, w- I mean, I will admit, I was initially skeptical when we wanted to include this in eighty schlock sci-fi. It was like I was thinking, how schlocky is this movie? And then third act, it went. It steered into the skin of schlockiness. It went full on. It went there. And I was like, oh, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when Paul's writing the word, I'm like, oh, this is the territory we're going into. Okay. And, yeah. I was thinking the same as you. And then sure enough. Yeah. Those explosions, man. That montage of that battle was just, oh, it was so bad. <laughs> so bad. The Baron flying into the mouth of the worm. <laughs> Oh, geez. Yeah. And you're absolutely right about the explosions. I have a feeling Michael Bay watched this movie as a child and thought, I want to make a movie that's just that. (laughs) Explosions. Someone has to, and I don't know if it's on YouTube already, but they have to like uh, edit together all the explosions in a Michael Bay film. I would love to see that. Oh, there's got to be. <laughs> like, I don't think the man's ever made a movie without explosions. Right? Even his ambulance film that's coming out. I uh, was watching the trailer. I'm like, ah, this seems a little too tame for Michael Bay. And then sure enough, poof, all these explosions. And I'm like, there it is. There's the man that I knew. <laughs> Just to digress. I mean, I mean, there is like the first thing you type in. There is a top 10 Michael Bay explosions. There's also... Um, a robot chicken sketch just just says Michael Bay presents explosions. <laughs> I love it. God, I love YouTube so much. Uh, well, I guess you know we could say in this film, in this episode, who's not doing their job as the editors? But <laughs> who would you say in the movie contextual, uh, in the movie concept, who who isn't doing their job as a character? You know, in I think that like and this is the point I I chose this character because this is the point in the film where it transitions like we just finished the second act that was actually really good made the film watchable and entertaining but I would say the person not doing their job in this movie is Jamis the the Fremen warrior who not 30 seconds after Paul and his mother winding up in the siege where Jamis is just like I challenge you to a duel and Jamis is dead. Yes. I'm going to totally back you on that. That, Yeah, that's actually mine as well. And that was my criticism of the modern film, the one that just got released too, because it just doesn't make sense that like this dude shows up and that's like the first decision that we're going to make. We're going to challenge you to a duel. It's like, wait, what? Don't you want to like know? But maybe that's like their culture, you know, just like us. We kill what we don't understand. I just wanted to. I just wanted Paul to look at Jamis and just be like, "You don't even know me. I will end you." And he does. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't end so well for Jamis because he's then turned into water for everybody to drink. Yeah. Oh my God. I know. 
That's so morbid to think. Like, if you die in this world, you're especially if you're among the Fremen, your body's turned into something drinkable. Oh, my God. I know. It's so crazy to think about that. Like, all right, kids. Grandma just passed away drinking grandma. I wonder if they, like, bottle up different people's bodies, you know? They have a cabinet full of their lineage and their generations of their family. Uh, here's grandma age 83 years <laughs> and then we have uh your uncle steven who uh unfortunately passed away young he was age 28 years <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna keep that on the shelf for a little bit <laughs> excellent oh god that's that's horrible <laughs> but so funny that is so funny it is so horrible i mean it's kind of cool because like it in some regards i know um and like some monks they do that practice like with buddhism where like a monk will pass away and so what they'll do is they'll use like their body parts as like tools like they'll turn their bones into like forks and knives or like their skull they'll like drink soup or tea out of their skull obviously after washing it and cleaning it but like the semblance is like you know you give back death and permanence and all that stuff and like that's that's something that's really powerful not for everyone not for everyone but I understand that, but I don't know if the movie was going for that. Yeah, I don't think so either. Like, I think it was just like, you know, them utilizing everything at their disposal just to survive. Like, oh, there's a dead body here. <laughs> well, we can't just bury it. We have to use it for something. <laughs> Turn them into water. <laughs> I love it. I wonder what that technology is. That, that's just mind boggling. Oh, my God. So that's cool. Did you have any uh, lens flares or anything? Um, yeah, this is something that we've actually previously dunked on a little bit here on our episode today. But uh, those weirding modules, the sonic weapons, the thought weapons, whatever they're called, they're completely ridiculous when they're being used in this film, both um, during Paul's training and the battle sequences. It is just something that is completely ludicrous to look at because they say a word. And then 100 feet away, there's an explosion. There's no laser blast. There's nothing. It's just like, I send bad word, and the bad word turns into explosion. <laughs> I'm going to agree with you as well. Those were just so stupid. They're so silly. It's, so, it's like weaponized Twitter is what it is. <laughs> yeah, weaponized Twitter. I like that. That's just, it was just so silly, so outlandish. It's just one of those things where I think, once again, where the book, it just does not translate because it's just so out of this world. Unimaginable. That's funny. Uh, if uh, For red shirts, I don't know about you, but mine is kind of, I guess, torn between, I understand in like a contextual con like character why they want to have the duncan fight that guy so that he gets his first taste of blood and like changes um but i would say duncan duncan's death was at my red shirt because he just like got brutally murdered i think he got stabbed through like the face or something or in the heart like on the stairway right and then you get uh paul just go no well, there's that um that training sequence earlier in the film with Gurney and Paul where they say, like, the slow blade penetrates the shield. And I think that was just, like, I think one of the, the soldiers shot, like, a slow-moving, like, it looked like a drill bit, to be honest. And it went through the shield, and it got Duncan right in the head and killed him instantly. 
But like, yeah, I can I can see that because Duncan, you know, isn't a huge part of this film. I mean, I think he's maybe in three scenes, including his death. <laughs> and then like, that's it. That's all we get. Yeah. As as opposed to like the new film where we get him a little bit longer. Yeah, this it's just funny. How about you? You know, I think this is something that you know and and past listeners of our uh, shows will know. If I see an animal in a movie that's somehow mysteriously killed, I'm going to pick said animal. And if you notice when the Atreides are leaving Kaladay on their home planet, they have a little pug with them. And they carry this pug with them to Arrakis to be part of their new home and their new world. And about, I would say, at the coup attempt when the Harkonnens and the Emperor's soldiers show up, this pug disappears. It is not seen again throughout the rest of the film. And given the Harkonnens' just immense dislike of anything Atreides, I have to believe that they took this pug and brutally killed it. And so I have I have to pick the the little that cute little doggo as my red shirt in this movie. I think I think <laughs> I think the dog died in battle because um, during the coup and I don't know, you might have missed it. But Gurney, Patrick Stewart's character, he had the pug and you you, you can rewatch it. He stuffed the pug in his suit and he was like, charge. So Patrick Stewart is running with the knife and he's holding the pug in his shirt. Yeah, and then the pug is gone when we see Gurney again. <laughs> Why did he bring the pug? That was my question. Why would you bring this poor, happy pug with you to battle? I have to hope that that pug at least took a laser blast for Gurney and died heroically. If he was going to bring a poor, defenseless dog into battle with him, I, I hope to God that the pug died saving Gurney's life. Right. What the hell? Why? Why, Gurney? Why? <laughs> oh, God. I know. That's funny. Yeah, I couldn't believe it either when I saw that. I'm like, what the hell, man? Poor pug. Well, that was what bothered us. Do you want to hear what bothered the Internet, Sean? Of course. You know, I always do. <laughs> so in uh, this latest edition of This Week in Toxic Fandom, uh, when Stilgar marks the Fedekin with red paint or blood, he says there are 15 of them. Right before Paul takes the Water of Life freeze frame, and you will see 16 of them. So we're off by one in the Fedekin. The elite soldiers, apparently, out of thousands of Fremen, you freeze frame and you see, oh, look, there's 16. There's not 15. That is just, that's funny. So they are the best soldiers, but they suck at math. Or maybe the the director and the writers, they suck at math, too. Or maybe an extra just saw, like, hey, I want some red paint on my shoulder, too. Like, I'll take some. And then David Lynch was just like, well, I thought it's like, ah, oh, whatever. Just leave it in the movie. They're going to change this anyway. Yeah, right. Yeah, they'll probably edit this out. Crap, we ran out of uniforms. Uh, just wear this. It'll be fine. That is funny. Oh, God. Well, hey, so we have a, you know, I mean, I, I feel like that is a that is a good gripe to have because they did make a note of 15. And uh, that is a studio blunder. So I, I understand their anger. 
Yeah, pro tip, just don't say anything specific numbers-wise in your film because there's going to be somewhere, someone out there on the Internet that's going to count whatever you say and then go to IMDb and complain about it. Absolutely. I mean, there are people out there that uh, actually, like, freeze frame on, like, newspapers and stuff and movies, and they'll actually, like, try to read it. And then if, like, the newspaper doesn't actually say anything um, coherent, they'll... They'll post online, you know, there'll be a uh, gripe about the film. Uh, of course they will, because people have too much time on their hands these days. <laughs> Absolutely. Much like us for watching this movie. But we can get into the legacy of this film. Uh, I guess, you know, as we've discussed, you know, with the tough start to get off the ground, it really did not make any money, like enough money for the box office. No, in 1984, money like this movie, to turn a profit, would have had to have made $200 million. And you want to take a guess as to how much uh, this made at the box office that year? Or how much? Like 20? 25? <laughs> a little better than that. It only grossed $31 million. <laughs> Jeez. There are, a lot of, <laughs> there are a lot of things that contributed to that, though. As we said... The production budget was $40 million, which at the time, that was actually very expensive for a film. Like, even the Star Wars films didn't get a $40 million budget. Um, and people hated, hated the movie. And I think what contributed to a lot of the negative press about it was it was not screened ahead of time for critics to review it. So once the movie came out, you're seeing a lot of, Bad reviews. Roger Ebert, uh, Ebert gave it one star. Call it the worst movie of 1984. And so <laughs> much bad press really kind of leads to low box office numbers. I get that. Well, yeah, right? Because that's kind of that's when you know a film's going to be bad if they don't allow the critics to view it before the general public. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's tells audiences like, why aren't they letting critics see this? Maybe we shouldn't go see it. Like, it's it's very simple math here. It's there's there's no benefit to be had by not screening it for critics. Even if your movie's bad, we'll let people find out about it after the movie comes out, and you've already gotten their money. Makes sense. Makes sense. I mean, the movie is just so bloated too. So it's like all the details. That you have to like keep track of. Didn't they have like um I thought I read somewhere they had like a guide? Yeah, I I saw I read this online that the some theaters actually created or had um a guidebook for audience members to take as they were going into the theater. You know, that had a list of definitions of words in the movie, descriptions of the planets, and also a character list as well. So that's also kind of takes people out of the experience when you have to you know, constantly look through a book and saying like, oh, here's who Thufer is and here's what <laughs> Spice is. And oh, that's right. We're on planet Arrakis. That is. Yeah, that's no, 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 no. That I wonder, though, how much that would fetch nowadays on eBay, because that, that that is, you know, that would be a movie item. Yeah, uh, I'm looking at one. I'm looking at one right now. That's actually um it's it's from a Japanese theater, and apparently it is 32 pages. It's on red. And oh, my can, God. You what? can get one. I'm looking at it. It's $22 on, uh, on eBay right now. Oh, my God. 32 pages, though? Yeah. 
That's insane. 32 pages. No. That's like a that's like a short novel. What? <laughs> I'm about to watch a movie. I don't have time to read. <laughs> I mean, if one of our listeners is feeling generous and wants to get us a couple of copies of this, we will be eternally grateful to you. Bet. Absolutely. Send us an email and we'll tell you where to send it. <laughs> Did they have any uh, sequels or anything? Well, because this movie tanked at the box office, any and all plans for sequels were immediately canceled. David Lynch was released from his contract, and he was actually in the middle of working on the screenplay for uh, the sequel that was going to be titled Dune Messiah. And then like they were all like, nope, no more. You're done. Bye-bye. <laughs> you didn't give us what we wanted, which was money. Adios, you crazy man. I mean, but people have not faulted David Lynch for how this movie turned out. I mean, Frank Herbert was even complimentary of David Lynch's efforts. And um, the former, or I guess, uh, director with an unproduced uh, vision, Alejandro Jodorowsky, he complimented Lynch, but said the movie was terrible, but owed the fact that that was probably due to the, to the producers cutting it up and not Lynch's efforts. Yeah, I think, you know, he's spot on. And I think, uh, didn't the film, it did get nominated for an Academy Award, right? For Best Sound? Best so Sound? It, I mean, but yeah. also in that same year, I think it was nominated for a Stinker Award for Worst Movie, so. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, this movie still sucks. <laughs> but elements are okay. Which, I, I don't know, I was going to actually talk to you about that. So the soundtrack of this film is Toto, you know, the band Toto uh, from the 80s and maybe 70s. I wasn't really, like, moved by the soundtrack. It didn't really, like, do anything special, you know? It's not like Hans Zimmer. No, there was this weird, like, um, like in the, in, probably in the first two hours of the movie, there's heavy orchestral score, some electronic synthesizer, and then in that final act... You know, when we have the resistance movement, that's where the Toto soundtrack comes in. You hear a lot of rock and roll, more synthesizers, and I, I feel like the soundtrack should have been a bit more consistent. You pick one thing or you pick the other, and the, the inclusion of Toto in this movie was um, probably not warranted, to say the least. No, it, it added to the schlockiness because it was just so out of the ordinary. Like, it just didn't make sense for the film. The film didn't seem like it almost felt like a 70s film to me. But then once that final third act, I was like, oh, this is so 80s schlock because <laughs> you have the weird synthesizer rock with like the montage. It just that's where it was. I mean, but Toto, like they came out with the, the song Africa. If you've ever been to a karaoke night, you've heard somebody sing this song that came out in 1982 right in the middle of you know probably you know right as production was kicking off for this movie so the studio was probably like hey we can capitalize on this we can have toto do the soundtrack <laughs> that'll help please come see our film it's not as bad as it sounds <laughs> well yeah it was i mean david lynch still doesn't care for it won't talk about it um i know there's like kind of a cult following with this like it's weird because older people that I've asked about it the past couple of weeks, they all review it like they remember it fondly. They're like, oh, yeah, this is great. I remember Dune in the 80s. And I don't know if that's just like hindsight 
we tend to view it with rose tinted glasses, you know, because, um, you know, I just, I can't really, it didn't gross that much and the VHS, you know, so I don't think like, I think if people say they remember it fondly, I don't know. I mean, there is a sect of people out there that really do enjoy this, but it's hard for me to believe that most people enjoy this. I think at least the 1984 version is something that's riding on the coattails of future adaptations. Because, like I mentioned, it's got a miniseries remake in the year 2000 that was well-received, that won a couple of Emmys. And then we had the Denis Villeneuve remake that came out in 2021 to massive critical acclaim and box office success and really helped to redeem the legacy that is this movie but i think you're right i think people who do remember this movie may not exactly remember how bad it is but they remember everything that came afterwards that was positive and that has sort of clouded their perception of this movie to some degree Mm -hmm. i definitely i'll agree because i don't i like like you know we've said we only saw the fan one because it was free number 1 and number 2 it added extra stuff cuz i know prior to they said you know the worst part about this film was that it was short and it didn't make sense so watching a longer version felt like the better idea but even the longer version just didn't work <laughs> so i don't know well uh yeah, I think, you know, it, it's had some legacy, some things. Didn't, like, they make games and stuff from this? Yeah, I mean, this was this got the full, you know, um, product blitz that contributed to the marketing budget. It got toys. It got games. It got books. It got comic books. It got everything under the sun that, was, that could be considered a tie-in release for this movie. And... <laughs> You haven't even you hadn't even sold one ticket and you already committed probably close to a hundred million dollars in just the marketing and merchandise alone. And of course you weren't gonna make any money because nobody knew what to expect from it. I mean, if you look at Star Wars, Star Wars had the toys came come out after the movie had come out and it made you know, all the money in the world. And to commit to this massive merchandise budget, of course it's gonna sink any hopes of turning a profit (laughs) right well at least now they can with the new one so i guess that is you know a pro from it right which uh, i don't know maybe maybe i'll rewatch the new one now again with a little bit different view because that i've seen the old one (laughs) but i don't know we'll see uh do you want to get into uh ratings for this Oh, hell yes. Let's get into it, shall we? Perfect. All right, I'll uh, I'll lead us off. So uh, using our unique scale in the Force-Fed sci-fi podcast of wouldn't watch, would watch, would own, and would host a viewing party. I mean, I mean, I tried to come into Dune you know, with, a, with a clear mind, but after watching it, at least watching a fan edit that does include the original theatrical cut, deleted scenes and all that, there's just so much the digest in this movie there's the history the interpersonal dynamics they all come to a head but there's massive technological limits of the mid 80s and it's honestly laughable when you know somebody like patrick stewart has to put on these box shields 
and looks more like a character from Minecraft than somebody who's instructing Paul in combat. Uh, but it's the 80s. And so, I mean, we've come to expect that with some, you know, films from the older generations. However, I think it's it's a visual marvel for the time. But I think waiting 10 years to make this movie would have made a world of difference in terms of the look of it. And the the leaps and bounds that were made in visual effects at the time would have made a massive difference. I think you still could have had David Lynch make this movie. Uh, but maybe studios would have been a bit kinder to him and allowed him the creative control he sought. Still don't think I would watch a four and a half hour version of this movie. But again, I don't know which version to watch because nobody has come out and said this is the right version to watch and the one that makes the most sense. Um, so, I mean, with all that in mind, I'm calling this a would not watch. Fair enough. <laughs> How about uh, you, Sean? What do you give to Dune? Sure, for our sh- to kick off our schlocky film review uh, project, I would also give Dune a would not watch. Um, you know, seeing the new one and then seeing this one, it's it's very interesting to compare and contrast the two. Um, I would say, like storytelling, like I said, the first third for me of this film was great. Um, narrative driven, interesting, great makeup, great props, great, uh, director choices. And I think for the first like third of this film, while there is like weird things like the woman and the girl at the beginning monologuing and trying to like explain everything to us, um, it, they spent a little less time than the uh, new one with like just meandering things like sitting and sipping over coffee. They really got into the narrative of the story, which is what I appreciate from a lot of older films. Uh, But this film just really falls apart the second half. (laughs) And it's just, it's so schlocky, just a little, just tough to follow. So for me, I just couldn't, uh, it was funny. I went from like enjoyment to utter confusion to just giving up and laughing at the silly wackiness of how it all turns out. So I don't mind it, but it still isn't something that I would recommend. Um, upon watching this, I reflect on the newer one. I say, you know, the newer one isn't as bad as initially compared to this one. So maybe I'll watch it again. Um, if I can, you know, get over the length of the scenes, but yeah, not too bad. It was fun. It was a good first round for our uh, 80s schlocky sci-fi, and I'm uh, I'm excited to check out the next one. Yeah, uh, I am as well, and you got to pick Dune, so we're going next with my pick, and I'm going to a bit of the more lighthearted side, I guess, of 1980s sci-fi. I'm picking a film from probably the master. Uh, if the 1980s were a genre, I think John Hughes would capitalize on that. And I'm going with Weird Science as our pick uh, for next time. Sweet. Sweet. I'm down. I've never seen it, but I've heard of them and John Hughes, too. So bet, my man, I am excited. Me, too. That's going to be a fun one to watch. All right. Well, as always, Chris, I appreciate you, my good sir. Until next time. It is a pleasure, as always, Sean, to record with you and to really break down schlocky films and all sci-fi films in between. 
And if you all enjoyed this episode of the Force Fed Sci-Fi Podcast, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You can also now leave us a five-star review on Spotify. That really helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Force Fed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you stream your audio. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, forcefedsci-fi.com, for show notes and links to all of the social media. And so for all of us at the Force Fed Sci-Fi team, we'll see you next time. <laughs>